as we're looking at uh, um, the doctrine of God, um, I just kind of want to bring some things um, up of what uh, the goal is and what the desire is um, in this class. Um, because last week um, somebody said, oh my goodness, you had enough information to go through, you know, um, two years of, of just study. And, uh, and, and you're going to get um, two years dropped on you on, in one hour, you know, and, and that's, what we're, uh, that's just what we're doing, and that's what we're looking at. But there's a, there's a reason why we do that, and the reason why we do it is because we just want people to relax and look at the Bible as a whole, uh, so when they read the Bible, um, they know what to look for, they know what to, to see, you know, when we're talking about the doctrine of God. You hear the word shepherd consistently. You know, you hear, the, you hear the word sheep. You know, why are you hearing the word shepherd? Why are you hearing the word sheep? So we just want to get the main points out. And we want to drop the main points um, down to say, oh my goodness, this is what Scripture is trying to communicate. This is what Scripture is doing. So we're kind of looking at the whole Bible. You know, how do we respond to the Bible? And going through this class gives us a dynamics of how the Bible is communicating to us and what the Bible wants to say. And, um, and then when we're looking at the doctrine of God, you're going you're gonna to get um, um, a lot of that. So the goal of this class is that you would leave the class, you know, after coming to class for one time or even coming to class for a year, and then just have a whole picture of the functionality um, of the Bible, of what's in the Bible and the direction that it is going. So the Bible is, um, is very simple in regards to the center message is Jesus Christ left heaven, came to earth, died on the cross for our lived a perfect life, sinless, died on the cross for our sins, rose again, and salvation is ours if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have the Old Testament pushing towards that. You have it in the middle, and then you have everything coming after it. But this is going a little bit deeper in regards to God the Father. Okay, what kind of role does God the Father play in it? And uh, the goal would be that you'd be able to look at God the Father and go, oh, this is the kind of role that God the Father um, plays into that. So that's what the, the goal is. So the goal is not to go through each of the points and work really specific on the points. The goal is to, here, let me give you a whole bunch of points so you can see a large picture of who God the Father, of who God the Father is as we're talking about um, the doctrine of God. So just to tell you kind of where we're heading is that uh, we'll do the doctrine of God and then we'll do the doctrine of Jesus. Then we'll do the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And that is what? The Trinity. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And after we study all those three, then we'll do um, the doctrine of the Trinity, of connecting them together and their functionality um, in the process. And that's where it's going to get you know, um, even more difficult you know, to, um, to put things together because it's, it's, a, it's another thing that's difficult. It's, it's beyond our mind of how it works. But we can see how it works, how it functions, and the source that, um, that it is working. So that's the, that's the goal on where we are going. So just to let you know that um, I've got a shorter lesson tonight, or tonight, this afternoon. Um, and the reason why is because, get ready for questions. <laughs> uh, the last two weeks, I keep saying, you have questions, uh, we'll let you ask questions, but I don't give you the chance to ask questions. So I just put a really short one together and say, okay, we'll do this so you guys can ask questions. So definitely get ready for questions because... My dream would be to have a discussion in our class, you know, and uh, it's really hard to have a discussion in here in regards to me being up here, and I have to be up here because the lights are up here and the camera's up here, and you guys being all the way back down there. It's, it's more difficult to get this interaction to take place, but uh, let's work through the, the lines of difficulty, and uh, let's, uh, um, let's bring up some discussion. Um, the microphone will be passed in that process. You just want to wait for a microphone to come when you have a question. So... Looking at the topic we're going to talk about, uh, Scripture describes God's nature by using communicable attributes. We're looking at the nature of God. You know, what is God's nature? Last week we talked about God's um, communicable attributes, uh, or incommunicable attributes. And when you look at God's incommunicable attributes, what is that? That's attributes that is uncommunicable. <laughs> In other words, it's attributes that are beyond our mind, attributes that that um, it's good to hear, it's so good to know, but it's not necessarily something you can conceive. In other words, it's, it's something that is like, I have to know this, but I can't grasp it. So um, invisible, you know, God is invisible. I, ju I just can't grasp that. But yet it's something we need to know. We need to know that about God and how he functions because he's going to give us an understanding of himself through some basic situations, but you need to know the base, a base that he's invisible a base that he's omnipresent, present absolutely everywhere. 
It's like, well, I can't understand that. In fact, I can't even describe how God could be present everywhere, present in time even. It's like you start thinking about that. It's like, okay, I can't locate it. I can't describe it. I can't put it together. I, don't, I, just, I just don't understand it. But yet we have to know it. <laughs> we have to know it because then he unfolds more understandable points, and we need to have the base of knowing that he's omnipresent, infinite, unfathomable, sovereign. You know, these are, these are um, incommunicable attributes, attributes that do not share in common with man. That's what incommunicable means. And attributes that we, are, we can't communicate. Um, it's in, um, incommunicable is what they are. And so today we're looking at the communicable attributes, and that is attributes that God um, shares with us. And whenever you start talking about attributes that God share with us, our minds can do what? Oh, I completely understand. <laughs> in fact, I know exactly who God is. And the reason why I know exactly who God is is because he has some of the same attributes that I have. So what is taking place inside of here is taking place inside of there in his, in his mind. So it's, when we say, well, we can't know God, absolutely we can know God. Well, we don't understand God. Absolutely we can understand God. And the reason why is because you can understand yourself. That's why these communicable attributes are so important. So let's just kind of go through them. God is what? Relational. <laughs> oh, I completely understand that. Do you understand it? Absolutely I understand it. People walking shoulder to shoulder. People walking face to face, people leaning on each other. You understand the whole dynamics of friendships. You understand the entire dynamics of relationship, and you understand the dynamics of how powerful relationship is. And then all of a sudden you hear this, God is invisible, God is omnipresent, God is completely infinite, he's unfathomable, he's sovereign, and then all of a sudden, oh, he's also relational. So you take all those big things that are just so far beyond our mind, and then he just says, I just want you to know that I am relational. Second Timothy 2, 13 says this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I will make sure that I'm with you, even when you feel like you're not. I will make sure that I'm with you. And I could, I could take that. I could hold on to that. And I can understand all the dynamics of that because I know exactly what relational means. The other thing is God is good. I mean, just simple things. God is good. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. And I just want to you know, even show you a picture. We understand what good is. In fact, what does good do? Good emotionally moves us. <laughs> it does. And, and you look at this picture here, and you look at that guy, and you just want to, you, you, in the blue shirt, you want to tap him on the back and say, you are a champion. You are somebody that is absolutely amazing, standing beyond the world and taking care of somebody who is absolutely beautiful, but just needs a tiny little help. So when you hear that God is good, we can even look at pictures like this, and we are emotionally moved to pictures like this, but can we be emotionally moved to God? It's like, oh yeah, I know him. He's good. Absolutely we can be emotionally moved by God. Often we look at God as, and we cast judgment on him. And uh, just to give you an example of casting judgment on him, you know, you know, look at a tsunami take place. You know, as a tsunami takes place, um, um, people die. And, and what happens when it does take place? Why would God allow something like that to happen? Why would God allow those people to die? And we all of a sudden start throwing stones at God. I don't understand how God could allow my son to die. I don't understand how this could happen, how that could happen. But when you look at specifically the tsunami, we get mad when the water breaches inside. And we are angry at God, but we never thank him for always keeping the water at bay. <laughs> I mean, for the one time, 10 times, I don't know how many times it's happened in my lifetime, but say three times it's happened in my lifetime, yes, anger comes towards God. But when you look at the beaches and you look at what we deserve, all of a sudden you can just say, you know what? He keeps it back more than he comes in. And if he comes in, there's probably a, a reason why he's coming in and saying, don't you know I'm always keeping it back and look at the power of when I release it? And what happens? There should be a movement. 
So we do the backwards thing. We cast judgment when something bad happens, but you know what? We get air consistently every second, and it is a complete entire gift that has been granted to us. We get life. We get love. It's a, an attribute that God is good, and he is consistently giving us the good things, but yet if one thing happens bad, well, then it's, it, must be, it must be God's fault. When we come to the context that we don't deserve what we get already right now from God. Because as soon as we sin, we deserve death. We deserve complete separation. We don't deserve anything that we, anything that we have. But we want to know the concept. God is good. This is who he is. God is loving. This is the next one. Do we understand that? Do you understand that God is loving? In fact, let's just show you another picture. Do we understand that God is loving? We understand the concept of love. Now we understand the concept of God. We understand how he works. We understand how he functions. Why? Because we have these communicable attributes that are absolutely the same, and then we can see even what is taking place in here. The connection. The connection of how we should love God and the connection of how God loves us. Isn't that beautiful? We understand it. We know it because we understand the conceive the concept of it. God is merciful. Just to even give you another picture. I'm just giving you pictures just to look at the different things. When you hear the word is God is merciful. Here is two soldiers that are, are in combat. And one human being is down. And as this one human being is down, it's like, yeah, I know that the whole political mess is pushing us to kill each other. But you're a human being, and all of a sudden you see somebody taking care of that process. This person does not deserve it. This person should not have it. It should not be taking place. But it's the same way that we function. We should not have God. We should not be in his presence. We should not be able to call him master. We should not be able to call him Lord. We should not be able to call him Savior. But yet he has carried so much mercy when we don't deserve it, and then he's granted to us. Does it move us emotionally? Like maybe a picture like this would move us emotionally. God hates. We understand what hate means. <laughs> yeah, I think we understand what hate means. Well, we want to understand what kind of God he is. Number five, or Psalms 5.5 5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. There is a hate. There is a frustration. We need to know that. Somebody was molested as a child, which one out of four, um, the statistics show one out of four are, meaning there's probably people in the room here, in which I completely believe it, have been molested as a child. Do you know what you need to know? You need to know that God hates. You need to know that God despised the iniquity that has taken place to you, and even that his wrath is building in regards to the iniquity. I hate things equal. How much do you hate? Well, here, I'll show you a picture here. Anger, frustration, picture of a, there it is. Dog. <laughs> now, God's wrath is always controlled. God's wrath is always controlled. But that doesn't mean there's something inside of him that is fueling. Well, why is this fueling? Well, I look at this verse right here and it says, oh my goodness, I guess I better not be boastful. Because if I am boastful, what's going to take place? God looks like that <laughs> in his heart. If I'm a person that carries boastful, God looks like that. I need to know that as a preacher. Why do I need to know that as a preacher? is because if I look really good up here and I look like things are being accomplished very well and I look like there's success and then I take that success and then I start pointing it to my direction, do you know what? Nobody's going to see God. They're going to actually see me. And do you know what happens if they see me? If they see me, they don't see God. And if they don't see God, then they don't find salvation. You see these words, God hates Pride. You can just make the concept, I hate pride because as soon as somebody stands up, he is not being displayed. And if he is not being displayed, salvation is not happening to the person that's standing in front of you because my name is not worth a dunghill of anything. His name saves. Therefore, when his name is proclaimed, people get saved. When our names are proclaimed, nothing happens. Nothing happens. So you see the, the, the pressure and the, the, 
the movement of God to hear the words, I hate, and when he says, I hate, and he look at pride, and I hate those who do iniquity, all of a sudden we're getting the personality of, we're getting the personality of God. And just a simple passage, one verse, should move us to the core on saying, now I understand the personality of God, maybe I better mind my P's and Q's, because inside that's what he's looking like. He's looking like that dog. We can understand that. Why can we understand it? Because God, he says, I hate those who have pride. I hate those who do iniquity. Do iniquity. God is jealous. Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. I am a jealous God. Um, he's explaining that he's jealous, so we, we understand what it means. In fact, here's a picture showing it right here. Now, you know, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but, you know, this is, you know, taking place to that, that poor little girl who's sitting next, and you can just, you can, you can sympathize <laughs> a, li- a little bit with her. There's jealousy that takes place. Well, would God the Creator, who's all-powerful, magnificent, be jealous? Absolutely. He does not want us to give our hearts to somebody else besides Him. In fact, he loves us and does not want us to have a better love than him. And he is jealous when it does take place. That's all the way through, all the way through Scripture. Well, that kind of concept tells me that God loves me. <laughs> I need to know he's a jealous God. Because when I prostitute myself to the world and I sell out to it and I have all these other loves, you know what I need to know in the, my, my heart of hearts? I need to know that there's somebody that cares for me that much that is just jealous when this takes place. I need to know that. That's why Scripture is communicating, and we understand it. We understand the emotions. God is carrying those emotions um, in regards to us, in regards to people. Number seven, God is faithful. Deuteronomy 7, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to the thousandth generation, with those who love him and keep his commandments. We need to know the faithfulness of God because we're living in a world right now where uh, people are just not that faithful. And as people are not that faithful, do you know what we believe? We believe that God isn't that faithful either. Why? Because it's it's selling to us, consistently selling to us. What do you mean you believe that God's not faithful? Do you know how many people say, you know, I've sinned too much for God to love me. You know, God's not going to forgive me. You know, if I walk into a church, this whole church is going to cave down because of all the sins that I've done. See, we don't understand the faithfulness of God because we've been even been sold to the world that you don't need to be faithful, and then all of a sudden we're transferring it to God. But we also know what it feels like when somebody is faithful, and then that's what he's proclaiming. We understand it. And we can go on and on about the attributes that are communicable that give us a revelation of exactly who God is and to completely understandable. I mean, you completely understand what a relationship with God is. When you accept Christ as Lord and Savior of your life and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you come into a relationship with him and the two commandments is love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love others, we all understand that. We understand what a relationship is. Why? Because we're relational people. See how, how it works? That's how Scripture works. We cannot go into the world and say, well, Scripture is... You know, I just, can't, I just can't understand it. These simple principles, we do understand because we have them inside of us, and that's why he's communicating those. So another one that I want to work really fast through because it doesn't give us a huge explanation of who God is. It just kind of gives us a revelation, a, a taste, and some of these don't um, um, give us um, a lot of information because we're trying to understand the nature of God and who he is. But God describes himself um, through theophanies. And what is a theophany? A theophany is a visible manifestation of God uh, to humankind. And this has taken place where there's a, a, a visible manifestation that is standing right in front of a person. And, and they're in Scripture. And here's where all the theophanies are in Scripture. There's also Christophanies, and those are the Jesus possibly just completely appearing in his flesh. And uh, God appeared to Abraham and talked to him face to face. God appeared to Melchizedek. Or God came with Melchizedek, again talking to Abraham. Then we have God wrestled with Jacob. 
um, as, we're, as we're looking at this, we can study the wrestling um, with Jacob, and you can see exactly the personality, pieces of the personality of who God is and under this, this wrestling. Um, what was Jacob wrestling for? He was saying, God, bless me. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this, this, this fight is taking place, and somebody is just screaming, God, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. And then all of a sudden, what is the person who's wrestling with Jacob, which is God do, he removes moves his hip. Well, what do we learn from that? Is that God loves face-to-face combat <laughs> with him. And we see it in Psalms. We see it in Psalms. God, I desperately need you, and I'm going to say it the way it is. All the way through the book of Psalms, you got face-to-face combat with God. God, I do not understand what has taken place. God, I do not feel you. God, I do not sense you. God, I am in desperate need. And God, I am going to be absolutely aggressive with you because I am a hurting individual and my heart is now going to be poured out before your throne. And please come talk to me. When you start thinking about that stuff, it's like, how can you treat God like that? When you look at the theophanies on how Jacob wrestled with God and how God wrestled him back, and then you look at the Psalms of the aggression of the relationships that are taking place, is that we can go to God aggressively before the throne room of grace and plead our case. And you know what? God likes it. God likes it. I heard a, I heard a comment that uh, um, how many people would uh, uh, take a hip out of joint to wrestle with God face to face? Jacob loved it. <laughs> he goes, oh, I got to wrestle with him face to face. I'll take the, the hip out of joint. A lot of people say, no, I don't want to lose a hip. Therefore, I'm not going to wrestle with God face to face. But this is God's responding to you. He loves it when we do get even aggressive, aggressive with him. And aggressive in a sense of going to him and begging and pleading and, and wanting and desiring. Um, number four is, is God um, and Moses. All the way through, you see God show up. And there's one in particular passage where you see um, God show up. Um, God is calling Moses to lead, and Moses just says, I will not go, God, unless I know for a fact that you are with me. Therefore, show me your glory. In other words, show me, he doesn't even say glory, show me your face. I want to stand in front of you face to face, God, otherwise I'm not going to go. And what did God say? God says in the passage in 34, he says the words, I can't show you my face, Moses, because if I show you my face, what's going to happen? You're going to die. <laughs> it's just my glory is too strong. But get, I'll tell you what, Moses, I'll let you see something else. What I'm going to do is I will put you inside of a rock, a cleft of a rock, and then I will pass in front of you and I will let you see my back. <laughs> Because if my face is shown, you're dead. But if you see my, you'll see my back, and I'll hold you into this cleft of the rock. So all of a sudden, Moses does. He gets in the cleft of the rock, and God presents himself in front of him, and Moses gets to see his what? His back. And then all of a sudden, what does Moses do? He writes down what he saw. He writes down what was proclaimed about him. And after he writes this down, of what was proclaimed after he saw his back, after he writes it down, I just want to tell you something about this verse, is that there is no verse that's quoted more in Scripture than the one verse that is quoted by Moses writing it down after he saw the back of God. Do you know what that verse is? It's Exodus 34, 6-7. It says this, And he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punished the children and their children for the sins of the father to the third and the fourth generation. That's Exodus 34, 6 through 7. What do you see? I see God, and I see compassion. I see God, and I see graciousness. I see God, and I see slow to anger. I see God, and I see abounding in love. I see God, and I see faithfulness. I see God, and he maintained love for thousands. I see God, and he's forgiving wickedness and the rebellion of sin. I see God, and he's going to make sure that the guilty do not go unpunished. What does that verse do? It just described Jesus. <laughs> it just completely described Jesus. 
And when you see the Father, what happens? A description is given by Moses way before Jesus ever came. But a description is given. He's writing it down as he looks at Moses, or God's back, and he just writes a description of Jesus. And what does the authors of Scripture do, which is the author of God? They quote this all the time. <laughs> they consistently quote it. And when Jesus shows up, what does he do? He says, I'm the God of Moses. And when he stands on the transfiguration, you got Elijah, and you have Moses, and you have Jesus. And when you have those pieces, you have the Father, or um, the, um, the, the, the light come, the proclamation come, and the, the audible voice say, this is my son who I'm well pleased. He didn't say that to Moses. He didn't say that to Elijah. He says, this is the man. This is the manifestation of who I am. After Moses had already described it. See, so you can look at these theophanies and like, you know, God is on our side. <laughs> God carries the same mission as Jesus Christ, because God is Jesus Christ. You see that connection take place. The Theophanies in regards to God and the pillar, um, the pillar of the cloud, God stood before Joshua. He hit the dirt out of complete respect as he stood before Joshua. God present before Mona and his wife. God present in the temple before Isaiah. There's another one if you want to understand God. Is um, Uzziah walks into the temple, and his, Isaiah walks into the temple the year that Uzziah died, the year the king died, and, and he walks in the temple, and he gets a surprise. <laughs> what does he get? God in the temple. God, this manifest presence in the temple. Well, what happens if God is in the temple? Isaiah's reaction is he just hit the deck. <laughs> he, he, he hit the deck. And when he hit the deck, what was he doing? I mean, I mean, you get the doorpost shaking, you get all this thing as God is present inside the temple. He hit the deck. When Isaiah hit the deck, he's, he's probably just screaming out loud. He's probably just crumbling. And why is he crumbling? Because he is a man of unclean lips, and he saw the king. And God knew that. He was a man who was not clean, who was not pure. He's screaming out, God, please purify myself because I don't want to stand in your presence if you're in the room. <laughs> I don't. I want to be completely clean. I want to be completely pure. Please purify myself. So all of a sudden you get the seraphim come and get the whole, uh, hot coal from the altar. And they bring it to Isaiah and they put, put it on his lips. And it severs his lips. And after it severs his lips, what does Isaiah get to do? He gets to relax. Why? Because it purified him. And the process of his lips, him being purified because of the severing of his lips, this is just what's taking place in the Old Testament. He says, I am unclean and I live with people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. And then he uses the most powerful words in scripture. Here am I. Who's going to go? And he says, here am I. Send me. After he is purified. So you're going to see God in his response, in response to Isaiah even standing in front of God. You get to see what it's like. You get to taste what it is like. And you also get a taste of what my sin does when I stand in front of God. And I also get a taste of, I want to make sure that I'm not a sinner when I stand in front of God. I want to make sure that my sins are forgiven. Because when Isaiah stood in front of God, it didn't look good. Someday I'm going to stand in front of God. Do I pay for my sins? Or I'm going to believe in him that he paid for my sins. So you can just look at all of those different dynamics. God's appearance to Ezekiel, a lot of dynamics there. God's writing on the wall, Daniel, and then God and Jesus, the prophecies of the Old, prophecies of the Old Testament. Theophanies, they will let you get another description of God. And then, lastly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. The reason why is because I'm going to spend three weeks on it <laughs> once we get there. And I don't want to jump into the next topic. So, God is described by Jesus. God is described by Jesus. Yeah, I know, I'm going to do the whole doctrine of Jesus, and what are you going to get? You're going to see it, Jesus describing God. I mean, you're going to get those pieces, but Jesus, um, God is completely described in the process of him. Another one says this, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation, representation of his nature. If you want to see exactly what God looks like, if you want to see exactly what God the Father, the infinite, the sovereign, the majestic, the, the omnipresent. I mean, if you want to see exactly what's going on inside of his heart, you can look at the pages of Scripture, and you can see exactly what he looks like. And what does he look like? He looks like Jesus. Here, here, I'll put a picture up here. It's not the most cleanest picture. In fact, it's probably even a, a dirty picture, a, a hard picture to even look at as it is coming up. Oh, you do not have it. Okay, you do not have the next. It's a picture of the cross. We'll put it that way. It's a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. 
And what do you get when you see Jesus hanging on the cross? You get the heart of God. You get the hate for sin. You get the movement that has been given for salvation, which is called grace. In fact, when you look at Jesus just sit, sitting on the cross in his blood, I tell you, is a picture from the passion. We'll put it that way. So it was not a very clean picture. But you get a complete revelation of God's character through Jesus Christ. In fact, in the process of everything that Jesus did, which is the ultimate die on the cross, you completely understand God. You completely understand God. In fact, Christ came for the purpose of making God known. So we will have absolutely no excuse, no excuse to say, God, I never understood you. God, I, I couldn't believe in you because there's too much evidence against you. And, and you know, you have the science that goes, and, and you can come up with all these things, and you're going to say, no, you have no excuse. You know exactly who I am because I put Jesus Christ that walks on earth. And all of his behaviors, all of his character, all of his attitude, everything that he's doing is giving you exact representation of who I am. Colossians 1.15 brings this up. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He just says it. This is exactly what I look like. But he doesn't say it once. He gives it Colossians 2.9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus is what? The radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by his word of his power. When he has made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of God on the majesty and most high. Jesus said to him, I have been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has what? Has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you look at me, you have seen him. It's the exact same thing. So we can hear these incommunicable attributes, and we can love them. We don't have to understand them. We can love them. Because in the process of God being sovereign, in the process of God being invisible, in the process of God being eternal, in the process of God being infinite, we still understand the other part of him that has been revealed. And we know that that heart that has been revealed carries all of those. And it should emotionally move us exactly on who God is as we see the process of God explaining himself. So here's a challenge just to kind of close before questions. Um, read the Bible with the expectation to find God. <laughs> Open up the Bible and say, God, I want to know you more. That's what I want. You know, we often open up the Bible and say, God, I need better behavior. Tell me where I need to behave. We know how to behave. <laughs> we, know, we don't need to be told how to behave. In fact, the Bible, you know, very, goes very little in the sense of behave like this, behave like this, behave like this, behave like this. What happens is that when you get to know God, you behave like this, you behave like this, you behave like that. You just get to know God. That's what comes out of us. Open up the Bible with the expectation to find him. Live as if God is so present right now. Live as if God can be known. And look at God through the lens of Jesus. Look at nature through the lens of creation. Look at nat nature through the lens of the creation. This should be God's nature. Look at God's nature through the lens of creation. That doesn't make sense. That Look at God's nature through the lens of creation. Okay, so we'll open it up with questions, um, conversations, or even just comments. Um, as, we're, as we're looking at this subject or even, you know, um, even beyond. First person's got to not be shy. All right, James, thanks for taking the hit. <laughs> okay. There it is, babe. Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm, maybe I didn't hear it. That's possible. Um, but I'm thinking about the contrast when, when Jacob is, is uh, wrestling with God and Moses wants to see God and all he sees is the backside of God. And yet Jacob is just 
in, if I hear it right, he's wrestling face to face. How is that possible in him not being evaporated? <laughs> good, good, good question. And uh, it, it shows us um, the different aspects, um, the def- different aspects of God um, as well. Can God be present um, in sin? And, um, and, and when we look at that, it says in, in Job that Satan came before God. Satan walked up before God. And Satan and God had conversation. And uh, so it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Can Satan and God sit there and talk with Satan being the ultimate, the ultimate sin pieces of it? Um, I might have gone a little bit heavy on the story of Isaiah. And when it comes to a little heavy on the story of Isaiah, it's like you can't stand in front of God um, in regards to sin. But what we do is we see people, and we see people wrestling with God, and we see people talking with God, and we see people communicating with God and, um, and, and in the process of being, of being sinners. And, um, and I would, the answer that I'd give the, that, that question is that judgment um, for sin has not been ultimately proclaimed and will be proclaimed in the last, the last days, including Satan when he is thrown into the pit. So is God and, and, and Satan, is there communication going on? We know communication went on in the, in the book of Job. One day the communication will be, now you're in complete judgment for your, for your sin. And then there's also a place where he will even be bound you know, um, in, in those places. So that will be a different piece. It's through the millennium that he is going to be bound. So um, the question or the answer is, you ask a question that is a little bit beyond our mind because what you do is you give Isaiah the perception of woe is me, I am ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips as God stood up there and thinking, oh my goodness, this is not good as he stood in the presence. But then you get Jacob fighting, fighting with God. You know, how do those two work? How do those two, to, the way that I make them work is I go into Isaiah and it's like, you know, God's really ticked off with sin. <laughs> and I see it there in Isaiah. And then I go to, um, um, I go to Jacob and it's like, oh boy, there's the fight. Let me tell you, I need you. I have to have you. Bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. Um, but judgment has not come down on us like it should because we're still alive. <laughs> I mean, we're, 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 still, we're still alive. And there will one be um, a judgment on the believer and the non-believer. The unbelievers will get raised to judgment. That's when judgment will take place for the sin. And then the believer will also get raised for what they did and did not do in regards, um, in regards to that. So judgment has not really has not come down. And that's where the wrath is being held. And then in the process, we see Jacob wrestling with God. And, and we see um, you know, Abraham talking to God in the sense that judgment hasn't come down. Good, very good question. All right, same direction. So my question is in regards to God's hatred and how we can apply that to ourselves and in which areas hatred from us appropriate and can we hate in a way that glorifies God like where's the line there because you Mm -hmm. mentioned you know hating Mm -hmm. evil God hates evil and of course I'm going to interpret that as we should also hate evil but I feel like hatred can be kind of dangerous Mm -hmm. in humans and I've always wondered what that line is for Mm -hmm. what we should hate and how we should hate and and I would, yeah. oh, go ahead, keep on asking. Oh, no, go ahead, that's it. So God hates in a different way than we do. And the way that he hates is that he's saving up. <laughs> he's not reacting, he's not reacting um, to his, he's not reacting to his hate. He is saving up wrath. So he is not responding with, with hate uh, right now. But when he says, I hate iniquities, it's something that we need to know that one day his wrath is going to be released because of how he despises the iniquities, and someday it is going to be released. So in the process of that wrath being built up, and someday it's going to come, we need to know that. And the reason why we need to know that is because our sins are fueled by sins that have have been done to us. 
You know what I mean by that? I'll use a, the, other, uh, the same example I used before, is if somebody was molested as a child or somebody was raped, all of a sudden that is going to fuel inside of that person to do what? To, to hate, to, to want to kill, <laughs> to, to despise, to unleash. Well, who's that person going to hate? Who's that person going to despise? Who's that person going to unleash to if that person was, was raped? They're going to do it to their husband. <laughs> That's just what happens. Because the fire is now inside of the soul. And as the fire is inside of the soul, they're going to unleash it in other directions. Now, are they supposed to unleash it to their husband? Are they supposed to unleash it in other directions? No, they're supposed to release it to a God that says, I am a God of justice and I absolutely despise and hate what was done to you. And one day, everything's going to be taken care of. Those who have had that done need to know that. <laughs> They, they have to know that God despises what was done for them, for them to be able to even function. Because God looks at you and says, love one another. If you don't love one another, then you don't even know me. Well, that's aggressive words to somebody who has been, I would say, raped. It's a very aggressive word. Well, you, am I supposed to love him? You know, did you love me? Because look what happened. You know, all this, this fuel and state, all this fuel and this fuel happened. So here's the line that I would give, is that God... His wrath is fueling and is not, being, is not being displayed. Our hate and wrath is supposed to do what? Go back towards God and say, God, you completely have this under control. And all we need to know, because David needed to know so I can say it, we need to know that something's going to be done. <laughs> we need justice. We need to know that there's a God of justice. We have to know that. Because we can't go and love people. We can't forgive people. We can't do anything. We can't even survive until we know that there's an overpower that carries justice, that everything is going to come into account. Now just love your brother because everything's going to come into account. And we need to know that what's going to come is a massive amount of wrath that is going to come to those who are even doing iniquities. And people go, well, how could you preach something like that? How could you know something like that? Well, you have to preach it in regards to those who are absolutely abused because we've got to let them release it and get rid of it. But they can't release it until they know justice is done. Because if they don't believe justice is going to be done, then we take justice on our own shoulders. And then we start to distribute justice because, how do I say it? We are starving for justice. <laughs> That's a horrible thing to say. But all of us are starving for justice. And God's saying, justice is here. It's all taken care of. Therefore, you can relax and you can just love people because it has not your responsibility at all. At all. So, did that answer the question? You want to get the microphone here, follow up question. Yeah, so it answered the question, and it also reminded me of a sermon from months ago where you were talking about um, the verse was love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Mm -hmm. And as you're saying that, I was like, oh, now I'm remembering. So, thank you. <laughs> yeah. All hate and, and, and all wrath is taking a complete responsibility from God, and that's why we've got to give it to him. And if you don't give it to him, that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is like, God, I need to let myself off the hook. Therefore, I'm going to hand everything to you. <laughs> that's what forgiveness is. And say, do as you please, because I'm not going to anymore. And then once that is handed over to God, then you can look at people and with, a, with a face that's not tense with a face that is like, there's a God, I praise him that he carries anger so I don't have to. I praise him that he carries justice because I don't have to. I praise him that he carries wrath because I don't have to. See how that, how that, that works. But another phenomenal, another phenomenal question. Yeah. This is the first time I've seen these words. I'm sure I've read them before, but I've actually not seen them before. You hate all who do iniquity. We've always been taught, or I thought we had, to hate the sin and not the person. So this is saying that you hate all who do the iniquity? Um, good, good question. And uh, the way that I would answer that question, and again, this is God speaking and saying, you know, he's, he's <laughs> again, it's, 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 it's thick and it's big. But this is how um, I would respond to that question, is that... Um, we don't know how desperately, how desperate we are 
Any human being does not know how desperate you are. I do not know how desperate I am. In fact, I think I'm pretty good. You know? And since I'm pretty good, I really don't need a Savior. You know, that, that's the way that the, the way that the mind works. And so we have God that says, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. Dead means that you are completely dead, that you cannot be saved, that you cannot have redemption, that you cannot have God whatsoever. I, as a pastor, need to know how dead I am. In fact, a lot of people would, you know, stress against this. But I need to know how dead I am. And when I need to know how dead I am, that God hates the one who does iniquity. And I would even say despises me with an ultimate passion because of the iniquity that I have done. Hurting people. Sin that consistently takes place, that kills, that slaughters. He does. He hates me. But God, who is rich in mercy, what? Came and went to the cross to do what? Display how much he hates sin. You know, we look at the cross and say how much he loves us. But he also look at the cross and say, this is how much I hate sin. How much I despise sin. And how much that I would even throw that into even despise the, the sinner. But being God in his rich mercy came and made us alive in Christ. And built us into a new creature. So when you look at the word grace... You have to go extremely low in mercy, and if you go extremely low, then God goes extremely high. So in this passage in Psalms, I hate the sinner. I hate the one who does iniquity. Wake up, people. I can't, I can't stand it. I hate the, the one that does it and the one that hurts the one that carries it. I despise it. But God, who is rich in mercy, came and he died. Open your eyes to this truth and find salvation. So when it comes to are people saved, are not people saved, um, when it comes to those pieces of it, we don't get, a, uh, we don't get to figure that out. We, we can't even make judgments. We, can't, we can't, do, can't do anything in regards to those pieces at all. But I can read that verse and say, before I was saved, God's wrath was on me because of me being a sinner. We can separate the pieces of it and say, well, God hates a sin, but he, he, loves, he loves the sinner. Um, but the sin and the sinner, they, they're wrapped up together, and they will be saved, you know, in the process, or they will go to hell together in, in, in those processes. So I don't differentiate too much. I just listen that God cannot, despises the sin, and What's carrying the sin? The sinner is carrying it. But God, who is rich in mercy, showed me this amazing love for me to respond to. Am I going to respond or am I not going to respond? And if I refuse to respond, then I'll be cast into the lake of fire forever. And that's, that's, that's the way that I look at it. Um, but um, people can look at it different. Um, are we supposed to hate the sinner? Are we supposed to hate the sin? Yeah, I could say we are supposed to hate the sin and we're supposed to love the sinner. Yes, we, we can do that. But does God... Hate the sin and love the sinner. Um, you know, that's, that's going into God territory. And according to that verse, he says that he hates the, he hates the sinner. Yeah, go follow up question. Do you know what the Latin or, or Aramaic or whatever original language hate is written in? Do you know what the translation of hate is the definition in this place? Very good question, and the answer is no, I don't. I do not know what it is. Um, but it's a, very, it's a very, very good question. And you know what? I can look that up, and I can bring it back to you next week because you're, you know, we, should, we should be looking at it. And um, um, there's an aggression, definitely aggression there, because I don't think the translators would have put it in without that aggression, but I would love to look that up. And uh, find that and give that and give that to you guys next week. But tough questions, tough topics. Um, again, we're dealing with God who is infinite, big, and huge. Okay, you go ahead and ask right in front of you. Are you have a question? Okay, but God is big. God is huge, and he's he's hard to grasp. And some of these passages come through. It's like, oh my goodness, look at that. And it's it can be aggressive. It can be tough. Yes. Well, I have a question on 
Number seven, God is faithful that he keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. And I can't remember the other verse, which is just how the sin of the keeps uh, the sin of the generations are passed down also. Mm -hmm. I've always wondered about those verses. Could you expand a little bit on that? Very, very, very good question. Um, again, when the Bible, and, and this is, you know, I don't want to get, you know, really, really confusing, but when it talks about the sin that is passed from generation to generation to generation, is that the, the sin that God is passing the judgment from generation to generation to generation? Is that what is, is taking place? In other words, I sin, therefore God is going to judge my kids, he's going to judge my grandkids, and he's going to judge my great-great-grandkids, um, is God the one that's going to do that? And um, I would say the interpretation of that verse is that my sin judges my kids. And if my kids get judged by my sin, my grandkids are going to pay. And if my grandkids pay, then my great-great-grandkids are going to pay. And the great-great-great-grandkids are going to pay. I would say the thing that's driving that passage is it is being passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. I do not believe that God says, okay, since you sinned, I'm going to make this generation pay, this generation pay, this generation pay. I'm just, I'm just going to do that. We're supposed to open up our eyes and see what kind of generations are paying um, as a result of our sin. And I would say we live in this world right now where laws are being changed in regards to identity, you know, um, um, you know um, sexuality and our identity. Um, that's going to have a huge, huge consequence that will pay, pay, pay from this generation to the next generation to the next generation. Every church should be looking at that passage in Deuteronomy and say, oh my goodness, three generations down the, ro the, the road, nobody is, it's all going to be so haywire. It's all going to be so messed up. I mean, that's, that's where I believe that passage is going and that passage is working towards. So, does that answer the question? So, I, the, the quick answer, which would be, is God going to pass it or is my sin carrying the pain? Uh, carrying the judgment. And I'd say that our sin is carrying that judgment. Okay? So 11, 12, we're going to have to wrap it up. Again, I'll give you guys more time for questions because so, I appreciate you guys asking questions. So we'll do that um, every single week. I make that, I'll make that commitment to you. I won't talk the whole time because I appreciate your questions.